27 years ago, I was a brand new Christian. God had opened my eyes to the glory and grace of Jesus. He had given me a new heart and he had granted me life and repentance. And one of the one of the marks of God's regenerating grace in my life at that time was a steady and sudden hunger for the word of God that wasn't there before. So like a newborn infant, I, I craved the, the spiritual milk of the word so that by it I might grow into salvation. And I began for the first time to try to read through the Bible, the whole Bible in a year. And I remember I didn't get very far into Genesis before I encountered my first stumbling block or roadblock, as it were. I came across a passage of, of Scripture, an entire chapter that had dozens of names, hard to pronounce names, long list of names of people that I didn't know anything about, people that I assumed to live a long time ago who lived and who died, and I had no idea what they had to do with me or with my life. So as a young Christian, I didn't know any, anything about the Bible really. So I decided, you know what? I'm just going to skip to the New Testament because it's newer and it'll be easier to understand. So I flipped over, looked at my index, table of contents, went to Matthew chapter one. And what did I find? I was greeted there with another long list of names of people that I didn't know anything about. Now, I wonder if you've had a similar experience in reading the Bible. I wonder if there have been chapters like this genealogy that we're going to study this morning that are challenging to you. This morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. And in this passage, Luke gives us the genealogy, the, the family tree, as it were, of Jesus. And his genealogy differs, it differs a lot from the genealogy that we find in Matthew chapter 1. How are we supposed to make sense of any of this? Well, just as an encouragement, when you encounter difficult passages, challenging passages in the Bible, you need to remember that God commands you to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your what? With all your mind. He commands you to love him with all your mind. When Paul was writing to his young disciple, Timothy, he said to Timothy, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in these things. He didn't just say the Lord will give you understanding. He commanded Timothy to think. Thinking is a prerequisite to understanding what the Lord is saying. So when we think over and think hard on difficult, challenging biblical texts, what we're doing is that when we don't understand them initially or when we don't understand the significance for our lives, what we're doing is that we're demonstrating a humble devotion to the holy God who breathed out all of Scripture. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, God doesn't waste any words. This genealogy in Luke chapter 3 is in the Bible because God has something to teach us. He has something to challenge us with. He, this is profitable. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. There, this is a profitable word that we're going to read here this morning. Now, in our study, before we read Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, 
just reminder of the context. In Luke's gospel in chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 3, Luke has been giving us several reliable witnesses, several reliable testimonies concerning the identity of Jesus. Dr. Luke is a good historian and he spoke with eyewitnesses. He spoke with people who were from the beginning with the Savior and he's written up this orderly account and he presents us with several eyewitness, several trustworthy testimonies in these opening chapters of his gospel. So think about the testimonies that you've heard so far. You've heard the testimony of Zechariah, the testimony of Elizabeth, the testimony of Mary, the testimony of the angels, the testimony of Simeon, the testimony of Anna. And most recently in Luke chapter three, the testimony of the greatest man who's ever lived except for Jesus, John the Baptist. Last week, we heard more testimonies at Christ's baptism. We heard in the Jordan River at this coronation ceremony, we heard, we saw the visible and the audible testimony from God the Holy Spirit and God the Father. And all of this testimony is communicating this, namely, that Jesus Christ is the prophesied, spirit-anointed Messiah and He is the eternally beloved son of God in whom the father is well pleased. Now this morning, Luke provides yet another piece of evidence to demonstrate to us that Jesus is the long awaited Davidic Messiah. He gives us his family tree. He gives us his lineage. He gives us his genealogy to testify that Jesus has the rightful claim to the throne of David. Just as he is the promised seed of Eve and the promised seed of Abraham, he's also the promised seed of David. So with all that context, let's give attention now to Luke chapter three, beginning in verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Joda, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kossum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, 
the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the, the son of Amenadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphraxadad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lemek, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot that we could do in studying this passage, but I want to draw your attention to three aspects of this genealogy. So we're going to study this under three simple headings that I think help us understand the significance of this passage for the world, the significance of this passage about Jesus, and the significance about this passage for you. So if you're a note taker, let's look at this passage under three headings. First, Jesus is the son of Mary. Jesus is the son of Mary. That's the first thing to see. The second is that Jesus is the son of Adam. Jesus is the son of Adam. And thirdly, Jesus is the son of God. The son of Mary, the son of Adam, the son of God. And my prayer is that God's spirit would help us to treasure Jesus Christ this morning. Number one, Jesus is the son of Mary. Now, before giving us this family tree, you'll notice there in verse 23, Luke provides us with this interesting detail about Jesus's ministry. We're told in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Jesus was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. The last time Luke mentioned the age of Jesus was back in chapter 2 when we found Jesus as a 12-year-old in the temple courts debating and learning and teaching the rabbis who were there. But then Luke skips all of his teenage years and all of his 20s, and now we find Jesus at 30 years of age beginning his public ministry. Our Lord waited to age 30 to be baptized and to begin his public ministry. This is significant. There's no throwaway details here. In the Old Testament, a priest would begin his ministry of public service at age 30. Joseph began serving in the house of Pharaoh at age 30. Most significantly of all, what age did King David begin his reign? Age 30. And so after all of these Old Testament images, Luke wants us to know that Jesus is ready to minister and to serve and to reign at age 30. And after he gives us these timestamps, he tells us in verse 23, the genealogy of Jesus. Look again at verse 23. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want you to see 
something important in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I imagine many of us in this room have gone online and searched at one of those websites like Ancestry.com or something like that to learn about our own family tree. I'm sure many of you have done that. When we do that, oftentimes we're just curious. We, we want to know more about our ancestors. We want to see if there's somebody famous or somebody infamous in our family tree. That's, it's more of a curiosity many, many times. But brothers and sisters, in ancient Israel, it wasn't just curiosity. Genealogies were vitally important. To ancient Jews, ancestry claims determine whether or not they got part of the promised land. The promised land was divided according to your tribe. So that was, in, that was tied directly to your genealogy. Ancestry determined the right of inheritance. Ancestry determined your taxation. Ancestry determined whether or not you had any claim to the priesthood. You had to show from your genealogy that you were in the line of the priests in order to serve. You had to belong to the priestly line. But the most important thing about a genealogy was whether or not you could verify that you were in the line of kings, that you were in the line of David, going back to even Judah. That was the most important. If you claimed royalty, you had to be able to show it with genealogies. And so the Jews, especially in the first century, kept these records. These were public records. So they kept them in the temple. You had to show that you were, in fact, born in the bloodline, the family tree of David, if you were going to have any true claim to a royal line. So genealogies were important. They, they had these records before the exile to Babylon and afterwards they had these records. The Jews in the first century knew their own family tree. We see this even in Luke's gospel. When the time of the registration happened in Luke chapter 2, what happened? Mary and Joseph knew that they were in the family tree of David. That's why they went to Bethlehem to register there. They knew their own family tree. They knew their lineage. So what Luke is providing for us in verses 23 to 38, it's not just something that he has to put in there. It's a necessary testimony that says that Jesus is an authentic descendant of King David. That's why it's here. It's testifying that he is the Messiah. If Jesus isn't descended from David, Jesus isn't the Messiah. So Luke wants to persuade us and to show us that this is the case. Now, just as an aside, if you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the opponents of Jesus, they don't believe he's the Messiah. But they never question the fact that he's a, de a descendant of David. You ever notice that? They don't attack the fact that he's a descendant of David. They just don't think he's Messiah. That's important for us to note. Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem on a donkey there for Passion Week, the people were waving branches. And what did they cry out to him? The crowds cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the what? The son of David. Because they understood that he was from the line of David. Now, 
I want to talk for a minute to try to help us understand why are there so many differences between Matthew's genealogy of Jesus and the genealogy that we find here in Luke's gospel. Let me just point out a few things for us to understand. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus is abbreviated and it's stylistic. He tells us what he's doing in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. He has three sets of 14 generations. He structures the genealogy of Jesus into three sets of 14 because he wants to highlight Abraham and David and the exile. He has 42 names in his genealogy. He begins with Abraham and then he works all the way up to Jesus. He works from the past to the present. And he also breaks the Jewish custom of listing out women in his genealogy. That was shocking. Jews didn't put women in their genealogies because the inheritance, as it were, passed through the males. But he not only lists four women in Jesus's genealogy, he even lists Gentiles, right? Rahab the harlot and Ruth the Moabite was scandalous. It was, it's glorious, but it's also scandalous for a first century Jew. But Luke's genealogy is different. Luke's genealogy is much longer than Matthew's. Luke's genealogy is exhaustive and its structure looks just like a typical Jewish style. So if you go back and look at First Chronicles chapter 1 to 4, you're going to find a list of genealogies. Luke is modeling his genealogy right out of the Old Testament. Luke doesn't list any women. He has 77 names. He has 11 sets of seven names. And it looks just like a genealogy from the Old Testament. Luke begins with Jesus and then he works backwards all the way to Adam. Luke starts with the present and works back to the past. So why why do Matthew and Luke have so many different names? For Jesus' ancestors? The short answer is because they're tracing two different genealogies. They're tracing two different family trees. For example, if you have your Bible, look down at verse 31. Luke chapter 3, verse 31. So don't look at me, look at your Bible. Do you see in the middle of the verse, Luke says, the son of Nathan, the son of who? So not, not all at once. I can't hear you. The son of Nathan, the son of David. David. There you go. You see that. He, he traces Jesus's line back to David through Nathan. Nathan was David's third son born to Bathsheba, right? If you flip over, you don't have to do this now, but if you were to flip over and look at Matthew's genealogy, he traces... Jesus' line back to David through his son Solomon. You can see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. Solomon was David's first son from Bathsheba. Now, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Well, this is the point. This is crucial. Luke's genealogy is tracing Jesus' lineage to David through Nathan and Matthew's genealogy is tracing Jesus, his lineage to David through Solomon. 
So you have two different lines. Both of them are royal lines. Both of them go back to David, but they come down to us through different sons of David, one through Nathan and the other through Solomon. Now, there there are different views on this, but I think because of that, the reason it's that way is because what we have here are two different genealogies, as it were. What we have here, we have the genealogy of Jesus from the maternal side and from the paternal side. Now, this isn't weird. Now, I'm going to shock you. Ready? You have two genealogies, right? (laughs) You have a mom and you have a what? A dad, right? You, you can trace your lineage on your, on your paternal side, on your father's side, or on your maternal side. And that's what's happening in these genealogies. Matthew provides the genealogy of Joseph through his father Jacob back to King David through his son Solomon. And Luke provides the genealogy of Mary through her father, Heli, back to King David through his son, Nathan. But the problem with this is if you look at your Bibles, Luke doesn't mention Mary at all, right? I told you before, he doesn't mention any females in his genealogy. He doesn't mention any women. And like I said before, this is because the traditional way of doing genealogies was not to list any females. Now, the legal right to rule came through your father. And so Joseph, as you know, wasn't Jesus's biological father. Luke tells us this. Matthew tells us this. He was, as it were, adopted by Joseph. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Joseph was Jesus's legal father, not his biological father. He was his legal father by adoption. And so when Matthew's writing his gospel, what he's doing is he's helping his Jewish readers understand that Joseph was a righteous man and he was the legal father of Jesus. And as a descendant of David, Jesus has the legal right to the throne of David through his adopted father. And if you read Matthew 1, brothers and sisters, it's written from Joseph's perspective. But when we turn to Luke's gospel, what you've probably noticed as we've read in Luke chapters one and two, especially Luke one and two is really written from the perspective of Mary. Did you ever think about that? Mary is the one that Luke speaks about so much in Luke chapter one and two. Mary is the one Mary as the biological mother of Jesus. She's visited by the angel. She's told by the angel that her son will be the son of the Most High, that he will be given the throne of his father, David. Mary sings a song of praise. Mary hears the words of the shepherds. Mary is the one who treasures all these things in her hearts. So Luke is highlighting Mary's perspective in these opening chapters. Mary is the one prophesied in Genesis 3. She's the, she's the, we're told there that, the, that the, the Messiah is going to be the one born of woman, right? Eve's going to have a child. There's going to be a descendant of, of Eve, born of woman, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah 7, 14 says that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Mary is the fulfillment. She's the virgin prophesied in the Old Testament. So Luke is giving us the maternal genealogy of Jesus. 
the Messiah. He's giving us the, the genealogy of Mary through her father, Heli, back to David through his son, Nathan. Now, you might be thinking, again, where, where is that said in this passage? How do we get there? Well, let me just ask you a question. It's, it's always dangerous to say, now, if you were writing the Bible, but let me just ask you, if you were writing the Bible, okay, and someone asked you to write a genealogy in the Jewish style that only includes males for someone who was born and yet who was immaculately conceived, who didn't have an earthly father, how would you do it? <laughs> how would you do it? Well, this is what you'd have to do. You would have to come up with a way to subtly hint at the virgin conception in the text without breaking these conventions. You'd have to figure out a way to do that, to point the reader to what you've been talking about in the first two chapters. So how would you do that? Well, he tells us, he gives us a clue. It's a glaring clue. It's right there in verse 23. Look at it again. When Jesus, it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about... 30 years of age, being the son, here's the clue, as was supposed of Joseph. Do you see that phrase? Your Bible may say as was supposed or supposedly or as was thought. That's the clue. Jesus was thought to be the biological son of Joseph. That's what people thought. Even in his hometown, that's what people thought. If you flip the page and look at Luke chapter 4, when Jesus preaches his first sermon in his hometown synagogue, he reads from Isaiah and then he sits down and he says that this scripture was fulfilled in, in, in your hearing. And the people there are marveling at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And then someone shouts... <laughs> Or says subtly to their neighbor in chapter 4, verse 22, is not this Joseph's son? You see, Jesus was, he was thought to be Joseph's son, right? That's what people thought. But we know biologically he's Mary's son. This verb supposed is used by Luke to indicate something that is thought to be true, but is actually not. So take your Bibles one more time. Context is king. If you're thinking, what does the verb supposed mean in this context? Well, look at the last time it was used. Look at chapter 2, verses 43 and 44. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, this is Mary and Joseph, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Verse 44, here it is. But... Supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. You see, they thought he was with the group, but actually he wasn't. He was back in Jerusalem. So Luke is, he's telling us in that phrase, he's saying Jesus, he was thought to be the son of Joseph, but he's not. He, he isn't the biological son of Joseph. He's doing this right at the outset of the genealogy because he's pointing us to Mary. He's pointing us, he's hinting to us to the virgin conception, the virgin birth. And in order to keep the tradition of the Jewish formula, 
he proceeds to mention the first male in the line of Jesus's mother. Jesus's grandfather on his mother's side, a man named Heli. That's why if you look at Matthew's genealogy, Jesus's grandfather there is listed as Jacob. That was Grant. That was Joseph's father here. Heli is listed because he's Mary's father. So you're thinking, what's the point of all this? Like, this is a lot of technical stuff. Well, you need to, you need to understand that this is important. This is vital. Jesus is the son of Mary. That's Luke's point. He's not only, he not only has the legal right to rule as king through his adopted father, Joseph, but Jesus also has the right to rule as king because of the blood in his veins. Because he is descended legally and naturally from King David through his mother Mary. He's a descendant of David according to the flesh. Romans chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. So this is, this is the first vital piece of evidence that Luke wants us to think about. It affirms that Jesus is the Messiah. But there's two other things more briefly that, G, that Luke wants us to see in this passage. He's not just the son of Mary, but number two, he's the son of Adam. He's the son of Adam. Notice there, not the beginning of the genealogy, but look down at the very end. Look at verse 38. Look at verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Matthew connects Jesus to Abraham, but Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Why does he do that? He wants us to understand that Jesus not only came into the world to fulfill the promises given to Abraham and to bless Israel, but also to bless the whole world. He came as a son of Adam to reverse the curse that our father Adam brought as our covenant head into the world because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. So Luke is writing about the good news, which is of great joy, which will be for all people. He wants to help us understand Jesus's mission as wide as all the peoples of the earth. It's not just for Israel. It's for all the nations, all the peoples who are made in the image of God, who are descendant who descended from Adam. So you all know Acts 17, when, when Paul is preaching on Mars Hill, he says this, Acts 17, verse 25, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all on the face of the earth. And he has determined allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling places. So what Luke is doing is he's helping us understand that in, in his mighty providence, he has brought about through all of these descendants who preceded Jesus, he's brought his son into the world in the fullness of time to be the son of Adam, to be the last Adam. So brothers and sisters, this is helpful for us. Our Savior became a human being like us. 
Sometimes you see paintings from the early church and he has a halo around his head or he's floating above the ground or he's shining or something. That's not helpful. Jesus was a human just like us, yet without sin. All of us, every human being, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our nationality, belongs to the human race. We're all descended from one man, our father, Adam. So no matter what you claim as your identity, some of you, you think of yourself as a Virginian or as a a, a northerner or as a southerner or as an American or as a Democrat or as a Republican or as a libertarian or whatever identity you claim. You are fundamentally made in the image of God as a son or as a daughter of Adam. You share a common humanity with everyone else in the world. So brothers and sisters, this is helpful for us. This is helpful. We cannot let, we cannot let hyper-partisan, nationalistic ideology deceive us. Listen, practically speaking, this is what I want you to do this week. When you walk into a room, when you walk into a room and you see someone who looks outwardly different than you do, If you're thinking biblically, you see someone, maybe they have a different skin color than you do. When you see someone who's a different nationality than you have, whatever it is, if you're thinking biblically, the first thought that ought to come into our minds is this. That person is made in the image of God, just like me. That person is fearfully and wonderfully made by God, just like me. That person is is fallen in Adam, is destined for hell apart from God's grace, just like me. And if that person is trusting in Jesus Christ, you can say that person has been saved and reconciled to God and is a part of the family of God, just like me. That's what this passage is helping us to consider, that Jesus came into the world not only as the son of Mary, but also as the son of Adam. Jesus came into the world to rescue Jews and Gentiles from their sins. He came into the world to seek and to save the lost. Earlier, we sang in the service, we sang, see the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. That's exactly what Luke is telling us here. The sin of our father, Adam, brought the curse of death into the world. And every person listed by Luke in this genealogy, with the exception of Enoch, died. I mean, I had to go to seminary to to learn this, right? Everybody in this passage died, right? They're all dead except for Jesus. But see, this genealogy, this family tree, it's a reminder, brothers and sisters, They died because they were sinners. They died because they were children of Adam. The king of kings has a family tree full of rebels. And Luke has written his gospel to persuade us, to convince us of the good news that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He has provided a mediator 
one mediator between God and man, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to what J.C. Ryle, as we move to close, listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this passage. Quote, How little we know of the many people whose names are recorded here. They had all joys and sorrows, hopes and fears, cares and troubles, schemes and plans, just like ourselves. But they've all passed away from the earth and they've gone to their own place. And so will it be with us. We too are passing away and we all shall be gone soon. So let us forever bless God that in a dying world, we are able to turn to a living Savior. I am he, says Jesus, that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, is also the son of Adam, and he came to save sinners like you and like me and like these people to the uttermost. Jesus is the son of Mary. He's the son of Adam. And as we close, let's consider that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Did you notice just where Luke places this genealogy? Matthew begins his gospel right up front with the genealogy of Jesus. But Luke doesn't do that. Luke waits until the, at the outset of his public ministry to give us the, this credential, this verification that he's a son of David. And the key word that links this passage with what comes before it and what comes after it is that last phrase, the son of God. Do you see that? The son of God. Verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of God. What were we told at Jesus's baptism? God, the Holy Spirit and God, the father visibly and audibly testified that Jesus is the eternally begotten and eternally blessed son of God. Jesus is truly and fully divine. But Luke wants us to also understand that Jesus is also truly and fully human. And so he gives us this genealogy right after the baptism to help us understand that he's the son of God, who's also the son of Adam. He's God in the flesh. And in the next chapter, when Jesus goes out to begin his ministry, he's tested and tempted by by Satan in the wilderness. And how does Satan tempt him? If you are the what? The son of God. This is the the reason that Luke puts us here. He puts this passage here. But what we're going to see next week is that unlike in Eden, Satan loses. The son of God, the true son of God, the last Adam is faithful and obedient where the first Adam failed. He's led by the spirit of God and he's obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God, therefore, has highly exalted him. Now, let me ask you a question. What does this mean for you? What in the world does this genealogy mean for you? What significance does it have 
for you. As we read this, as we considered the details of it, I wonder if you're thinking, this is tedious. What does this have to do with my life? What does it have to do with me following Jesus? This is what it has to do. Everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, everyone who trusts in the Son of God, everyone who who trusts in the one who died for our sins and rose again for our justification, anyone who turns from their sins and receives Jesus Christ in the empty hands of faith and is united to Jesus Christ, the righteous one, you not only receive Jesus Christ, you also receive his spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit. You receive the spirit of Christ. You receive the spirit of adoption. For all who were led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Friend, do you understand? If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this genealogy as it were, by adoption, becomes your family tree. You are members of the family of God. In the household of God, you don't belong as a guest. You are welcomed as a child. You and I orphaned ourselves because of our sins. We threw away our inheritance. But through Christ in the gospel, we have been accepted. We've been received. And because of his blood and righteousness, we're treated as firstborn sons. We have an inheritance beyond all imagination. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And his family tree, as it were, has become ours. All because of our elder brother. All because of the son of Mary, all because of the son of Adam, all because of the son of God. I can say to you, because you belong to him, all things are yours. Whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Behold. What kind of love the Father has given to us that we, that we should be called his children. And so we are. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the miracle of adoption. We thank you for treating us and counting us and receiving us as children 
as heirs, as sons and daughters of the king. We thank you that we have a faithful elder brother, a forerunner, a champion who's gone before us to pave the way for us. Help us to consider Christ. Help us to look to him by faith and to follow him through the wilderness of the world until that day when we see our elder brother face to face. We ask this for Jesus, our great Savior's sake. Amen.